You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio on the internet airwaves since 2006 and crowdfunded since around 2010. By crowdfunding this show, you are saving me from having to rely on funding from the governments, the corporations, and the usual suspects, uh, including the mainstream media, so I can call it exactly the way I see it. Please do subscribe. You can go to truthjihad.com and you'll land on a page where you will see subscribe at Substack. You could click there or you could just go to kevinbarrett.substack.com. Hey, welcome back. It's the second hour of tonight's live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett broadcasting from the old ice cream trailer in the woods of western Wisconsin at an undisclosed location, trying to bring you some truthful perspectives that don't often get aired in the corporate mainstream. Well, we just heard about Pakistan, and we have a comparable case, actually, in certain respects in Ukraine. In both cases, we have monstrous disasters. It looks like in both cases, we're going to have a hard time reaching the uh, the people whose cell phones don't seem to like to ring when you call them on Skype. So here in the second hour of tonight's show, Gerald Sussman is uh, the author of a new article at Counterpunch, The Russia-Ukraine Conflict, The Propaganda War. Like Zafar Bangash's article on Pakistan that we talked about in the first hour, it traces a current catastrophe to its post-World War II era origins and describes sorry, abuse suspects. The person you called has a voicemail that has not been set up yet. Military, CIA, and the gang, local gangsters to work together to destabilize nations and basically loot them. In this case, we have an attempted looting of Russia. Okay, so I'm going to try to contact uh, Gerald Sussman and see if we can. Uh, get him on here. Your your phone is going to voicemail, as they all do these days. Somehow we're gonna have to change the system here. I don't know how to do that, but um, uh, trying to call from Skype. Hello. Oh, there we go. We made it. Hey, welcome, Jerry. How are you? Good. I, you know, I didn't answer right away because my phone said spam risk. So uh... yeah, that's what happens when you try to call people on Skype. And you, my oh. theory. Yeah, my theory about that is that there, it's said that Microsoft is trying to put Skype out of business because it wasn't designed for spying on people, so it's not very profitable. <laughs> I see. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my many conspiracy theories that are quite possibly true. So, uh, you know, first hour, I was just talking with Zafar Bangash of Crescent International Magazine about the crisis in Pakistan, where the country is teetering on the brink of collapse or civil war after a Typical IMF, U.S. CIA coup with local bad actors, gangsters and fanatics. And, you know, we see something like that happening in so many different places. And really, the Ukraine's conflict today stems from that kind of history as well. And we don't hear about this in the mainstream. And even some of the fake alternative media is cheering for Zelensky's heroic defense of Ukraine without mentioning the background of that conflict. Now, your article, Russia-Ukraine Conflict, the Propaganda War, does a great job of supplying that historical background. And it's, it's actually kind of shocking. Uh, so uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about why the mainstream discourse is so 
off base on this. You know, they see it seems even more extreme than some of the cases like Vietnam back when I was younger. Uh, why, why is is this propaganda war so over the top? Um, I think it's um, it's really about uh, an opportunity. You know, the uh, first of all, the United States. Um, you know, going back a long time. I mean, you might say going back to the Bolshevik Revolution when when the United States uh, refused to recognize the Soviet Union from 1917 to 1933, um, the hostility toward uh, to the Soviet Union and then, and then Russia, and even Russia before the Soviet Union, if you go back, you know, to the British escapades in the Crimean War, there's a long history of this. Now, why, why the current version of hostility has taken on such a kind of globalist effect. Um, I think there's a number, number of reasons, number of reasons for that. But um, uh, it just, you know, it just presents itself as an opportunity now to kind of uh, to beggar uh, Russia and the media, of course. Uh, uh, you know, a good way, I think, a good way of understanding it, uh, the media behaviors. To look at the um, Herman and Chomsky uh, manufacturing consent book, which I think had a, a very you know good argument about the fact that the corporate media essentially on foreign policy act as an instrument of propaganda, and they gave good institutional reasons why that is. You know, having to do with there being a, you know corporations relying on sourcing from high-powered you know insiders in the State Department and the CIA, etc. They gave like five, what they called five filters. And I think that that provides, if people read that, I think um, that will provide them some good insights of why in general the uh, media acts like a, an instrument of state policy. Absolutely. Now, philosophically, yeah, philosophically, I would, you know, I would turn to, on this particular question, I would turn to uh, Louis Althusser, the French philosopher who, who talked about ideological state apparatuses and he named the media as one of the ideological state apparatuses it's uh, it's an instrument for creating the legitimacy of the state and um so that's what it is so you know occasionally on on domestic issues and you know occasionally when when you have an unpopular president you'll have some dissent um in in the mainstream media so examples would be like uh, when Nixon was president, there was a lot of anti-Nixon, uh, a more critical, uh, some some critical analysis of his, you know, his war in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. And when Reagan was president, the same, that's because of the very strong liberal bias um, in the media. I don't, I don't think there's any question about it. There's been studies shown that, you know, they vote Democrat uh, almost overwhelmingly. And... Um, so we just that we happen to have a uh, liberal democratic president in the White House right now, so they're going to go along with him in a way that they wouldn't have, let's say, when Trump was president. You know, yeah. Trump, you know, Trump suggesting things like normalizing relations and negotiating with 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 Russia was considered obscene by the mass media, and even went after people um, who were even talking to to uh, Russian officials. No, no, so, no. Why, know, that, why, why do you think that is, uh, Jerry, in that normally the realist school of geopolitics would say that if the U.S. empire wants to try to maintain its global hegemony, 
that it should absolutely not antagonize both Russia and China and Iran, for that matter, at the same time. Brzezinski said that very directly and clearly. And yeah. yet it seems, it seems that Trump, uh, for all of his uh, faults and not through any intelligence of his own, really, uh, was more right. on track with what a lot of th people would think would be a more sane imperial strategy by you know, cooling it with Russia while you deal with the rise of China as the world's leading economic and soon technological power. So what, how, how do you see the, the, the side, the liberal side uh, being involved in the seemingly counterproductive war on the entire independent world all at the same time? Yeah. Well, first of all, they're not realists. I mean, you know, uh, if they were realists, they would uh, they would engage in things like an old fashioned term like diplomacy. You know, they don't believe in it. it's just sort of naked power grab. Um, and also, I think, um, you know, one of the things I think one of the uh, things about about Trump, why he was able to come up with uh, what in America is a fresh concept like diplomacy. Uh, talk to your enemies uh, is because he was an outsider. You know, he, he, he wasn't part of the Washington bubble. And I think there's kind of an incestuous mentality in Washington where, you know, you have uh, Mitch McConnell on the one hand and you have Nancy Pelosi and they're like kissing cousins when it comes to foreign policy. And they constantly reinforce each other. They're all invested in the system very heavily. And, and they have the media, you know, the mainstream media, the, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the cable you know, news networks. Um, they're all part of the, you know, the same club and they, um, it's just a very incestuous culture in Washington that, um, has this kind of produces this kind of group think on foreign policy. Right. But, you know, the media has always been, uh, the media has, the mainstream media, I should say, has always been an instrument of us foreign policy. And, you know, as I mentioned in uh, the article that I did for counterpunch, um, you know, uh, uh, Carl Bernstein had documented very well in uh, an article that he did for, um, let's see, what was that, um, in 1977, oh, Rolling Stone. Yeah, the CIA um, yeah, controlling the media, yeah. Right. He documented how over 400 journalists were working like the lips and teeth of the CIA, reporting to the CIA, you know, uh, acting as informants in their overseas bureaus. And, um, you know, so this is nothing new that the the media would act as an instrument of the state. But I think in the media is always really even going back to the origins of uh, modern journalism has always had this issue of really not being able to um, carry out the practice of journalism, which is, you know, to be uh, neither fear nor favor towards subjects, which they, which they discuss. And then, you know, this was very evident, let's say during the Vietnam war, whereas, you know, the, yeah, you know, the range of dissent was whether, or not the United States had, you know, you know, made a mistake in Vietnam. You know, that was about the extent of media criticism, you know, that that America had uh, the quagmire idea that in this with good intentions, the U.S. ended up in a quagmire. Yeah, it's always Vietnam. good intentions, isn't it? Nobody can imagine. Yeah, that the always, US leaders always have bad based intentions. on good intentions. Right. But you never you know, you never really saw in the mainstream media any kind of real analysis any kind of really intelligent analysis of the institutional basis of American aggression and imperialism, then that that's too far fetched because if they did, they, they wouldn't be in the mainstream media. I mean, they'd be out really quick. 
And especially today, you know, in the culture today of, of censorship, um, if you in any way deviate from the official line, it, it's worse now probably probably than it's ever been. Maybe maybe in World War Two, you know, in World War One when they had the uh, espionage acts and sedition acts in effect. Um, but well, how, you know, how, it, how is it, it in the academy right now, Jerry? Theoretically, the academy is supposed to even more be even more dedicated, sort of, to this you know critical thinking at the University of Wisconsin, where I got hounded out in 2006 for asking yeah. the wrong questions about 9/11. The motto is that uh, whatever limitations may trammel uh, free inquiry elsewhere, here at the great state University of Wisconsin, we will always uh, pursue the si- uh, fearless sifting and winnowing by which alone truth can be found. And that's that's their motto. But just like the CIA's motto is the truth will set you free. So I, I guess uh, maybe that it's just a joke. But what, what's it like trying to tell the truth about this stuff in the academy today? Well, you know, you have to tread very lightly. You have to choose, uh, you know, places. I I would assume it's not just in the academy, but it's in the whole uh, publications, you know, trying to get published in uh, established, you know, media. Uh, if you take a position that's sort of critical of the United States or or suggest that the United States is somehow responsible for what's going on in Ukraine, um, you'd be off the charts. I mean, uh, first of all, they wouldn't publish you as, you know, somebody like Stephen Cohen, the, one of the great uh, historians, uh, Russian, Russia historians found out, um, he was just isolated. And, uh, and I think, yeah, this is true in the university. I think, you know, it varies somewhat what part of the country you're in. I mean, there, there are slight variations in, the level of tolerance for dissident views. Um, you know, I live in Portland uh, and I'm at a state university here in Portland, uh, Portland State. And I don't know, I haven't really tested, you know, tested it. Uh, we'll see, you know, how they respond. Well, well, yeah, if, if, you, if you tweet out to Antifa, Portland Antifa that you were on my radio show, you might actually get a reaction. <laughs> I, I've yeah, had run-ins yeah. with Portland Antifa. They, they don't like the whole 9-11 truth thing. <laughs> Well, I can I'm not imagine, sure why. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine that to be true. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. a certain you know people fall into a certain orthodoxy and uh, they don't they don't tolerate the points of view that uh, that differ. You know, even if you have you know good documentation of what you're saying, it's just uh, you're not you're not towing the official line. Um, your subject, but you know the, the degree to which you'd be punished by that may vary a bit from uh, from state to state. I'm, I'm sure, like in the deep south, in Mississippi, I don't think you could get away with, you know, being a dissident for very long. Um, you wouldn't yeah. survive there. Of course, there, there are some dissidents from the right. It's shocking, it, is shocking, it is shocking that in a, in a state like Wisconsin, which, you know, we've always, you know, the, you know, always regarded as a progressive state, you know, uh, 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 La Follette, uh you know, I mean, the it had a strong history of socialism and um that it would occur, you know, this kind of censorship would occur in a state like Wisconsin. Yeah, well, interestingly, but, you know, the university wasn't that, they, they weren't all that enthusiastic about censoring me. They were kind of dragged into it by somebody in the state legislature who I think was being egged on by higher level Republicans like uh, the Cheneys and uh, Karl Rove was the setup there. But yeah, the university, they, Wisconsin people, by and large, they're actually kind of reasonable, but timorous, of course. And, and that's the problem. Everybody's so darn timorous. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, 
So, so yeah, Port, Portland, uh, it, should, it should be interesting territory. But talking about the Ukraine war, you know, you mentioned earlier that the realists and even, you know, populist right-wing people like Trump are more prone to use diplomacy rather than war. But wait a minute. I thought the liberals were supposedly the peaceniks. Whatever happened to that? Yeah. Yeah, there's been a um, – what's the word for it? I mean, there's been a kind of a, a transformation of the – Democratic Party, um, I would say uh, the way I would look at it, I, I think it really changed quite a bit during the Bill Clinton administration, where he announced, uh, essentially announced that he was a neoliberal, that he was going to end welfare as we know it, uh, that he, you know, uh, increased the uh, number of people being arrested in prison with his three strikes and you're out which really hit the black community harder than, than anybody else. And, um, and his uh, neoliberalism and his uh, adoption of, um, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions and um, his aggressiveness in, uh, in Russia as well. I think that's where the democratic party started losing its traditional uh, bearings, uh, at least the modern democratic party uh, with its, you know, rootedness in the lab- in labor in organized labor they, they really abandoned organized labor and they abandoned the working class. And Clinton tried to transform the party into a um, more of a middle class party. And um, I think that's, you know, he and his wife, who followed in his footsteps, um, were directly responsible for that political ideology for the election of Trump in 2016. Because Hillary Clinton, as a lot of people know, she just took organized labor and, and working class for granted. Uh, we're using expressions like, uh, what did she say, a, a basket of uh, deplorables to describe Trump voters. And, you know, and um, this really irritated people in your part of the country, you know, in uh, Wisconsin. And well, I've, been, I've been hanging around with we, the deplorables, Jerry. I, I've been to two Republican Party events now in the last month. In fact, uh, just uh, this Tuesday, I was at a Republican meetup where there must have been maybe 75 or 100 people. And when somebody mentioned something about Pelosi touching down in Taiwan, I uh, pretended to start the chant, uh, shoot her down, shoot her down. And, and totally, they totally cracked up, you know, the people at my table. And now imagine trying to do that with the Democrats. I mean, you know, uh, so it seems to me the Republicans now actually have more people who are relatively free thinking with a sense of humor. Now, a bunch of them are obviously locked into certain propaganda bubbles in an extreme way, but uh, the Democratic Party strikes me as almost entirely locked into the propaganda bubble, whereas the Republican Party is, well, as as one very bright young man there told me, uh, you know, Trump and the Republicans right now are the accelerationists, that if you think the problems are so deep-seated that the only way to solve them is to kind of blow up the system, that, you know, Trump is your man. Yeah. Well, you know, when the term left, you know, describing the Democratic Party as being on the left and, you know, what does left mean? Yeah. Sort of like left of what? You know, left of uh, of uh, of Attila the Hun. I mean, you know, um, sure. Relative to the far right, uh, you might describe the Democratic Party as the left. But I think a proper definition of the left, uh, I think, begins with the socialist left. And that's certainly not the Democratic Party. I, I don't think that liberals should be referred to as a left. In most countries, 
you know, some even somebody like Bernie Sanders, who's considered like the far left, you know, in American discourse. Bernie Sanders would be probably be a Christian Democrat, you know, in in Germany, you know, if he were living there. I mean, in other words, his political thinking is really is really not radical whatsoever. Even the conservative government in Germany, for example, completely supports, you know, national health care system. They completely support free uh, higher education. And these are principles that even liberals can't seem to come around to in America. So um, I think, first of all, we have to make a distinction between, you know, the liberals and the left. And I think the this kind of, you know, hawkish behavior that uh, you were talking about on the part of the Democratic Party, it's not necessarily coming from the real left. I mean, they sort of, again, I, I think that the real left starts with the socialist left, um, not with not with liberals, especially neoliberal liberals, like uh, like the Hillary Clinton camp and the Joe Biden camp. Absolutely. But the socialist Democratic yeah. Party, that's not really very progressive and it only pays lip service and they have much more in common with the mainstream Republicans than they do with with the real left. So well, they seem um, to sell themselves as radicals by beating the drums for identity politics, especially kind of types of identity politics that are guaranteed to alienate that sort of average uh, people, in, in the, especially in the yeah. rural areas. Uh, so that that just seems it almost seems like it's it's so perfect for defanging the left that it makes you wonder if somebody actually intentionally deliberately came up with that strategy. Yeah. And it also makes them look like they're actually doing something, you know, by taking up identity politics as an issue, as opposed to, you know, taking up global warming as an issue in a serious way. Um, but they can't because they're committed to a neoliberal capitalist economy. And that's on a collision course with uh, any hope of rescuing um, the atmosphere from global warming and greenhouse gases and uh, also on, on the area of foreign policy. There's really no difference between the Republicans and Dem- Democrats on foreign policy. They both support an imperial foreign policy. So, so you know, they choose the ground of uh, like to create a contest as if the Republican Party and the Democrat Democratic Party are really two separate parties. So they choose to fight over identity politics issues, cultural issues, and issues like abortion and issues like gay rights, which are in themselves important issues. I mean, I don't want to dismiss them there, but when it comes to sort of like the really uh, essential issues, it's really about and 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 the issues that most Americans care about, which just came up again in the most recent Gallup poll that showed that. Americans, by and large, don't really care about the issues of Ukraine and Russia. What they care about is inflation, jobs, you know, employment, inflate, you know, those kinds of issues and the economic downturn. And that's where, you know, the uh, Republicans and Democrats really are pretty much together on the most essential issues. So I think that the the identity politics thing is just a battleground that, that they select to fight over to make it look like they're really different from one another. When, in fact, the whole election system, as you know, as as most people or many, if not most people will recognize that the whole election system is really a corporate, you know, lobbyist run, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, expression of democracy, which is a kind of a fake, you know, fake democracy, faux democracy um, in which, um, you know, it's the corporate corporate money that governs who the candidates are and what the what the issues are. 
And, you know, they'll fight over they'll fight over social issues and cultural issues and things like that, because in the end, those are not the most essential issues that are going to like bring about a way of life that's going to give, you know, ordinary working class Americans access to health care, access to affordable housing, you know, education, daycare. Those are the things that really matter. And neither party is will can or is willing to deliver on those issues. So they choose to fight over identity politics, right? Yeah, absolutely. And well, the, le- the left also seems to get bogged down sometimes in weird, you know, ideological hair splitting. And, and, you know, when you, you know, I, I haven't been paying close attention to the leading socialist organizations, but you have a friend who's a member of one of them and he's been a sort of a fanatic anti-Assad guy. He's with the camp of the socialists who hate Bashar al-Assad and was totally supporting the U.S. attempt to overthrow the Syrian government. Um, and so that, that sort of thing, this dissent uh, on the left within yeah. the people calling themselves socialists can be very confusing and alienating. Yeah, yeah, you're right. This is, this is uh, I'm, you know, I, I don't identify much with sort of the doctrinaire left, like the, the kind of people you're describing. Um, because it's all about that. A lot of it's influenced by, you know, the fights between, uh, you know, uh, Stalin and Trotsky. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, so, it's so irrelevant to the American situation. It may be relevant to the Soviet Union, you know, circa 1927, but it doesn't have much relevance to the United States. And uh, and yet they choose to fight over these uh, these kinds of um, doctrinaire issues. And yeah. uh, they don't deal with pragmatics of um, of opposing really what the, the main danger in the world is, which I think is uh, is American imperialism. And it's not only in terms of uh, of leading to World War Three; it's the imperialism of the imperialism against the climate. I mean, the dis- the utter destruction that the United States is primarily responsible for in destroying this planet we live on. And that's you know it's tied into the whole you know, corporate capitalist system that we live under. They, you know, they can't, and, and, and the corporate capitalist system in turn is responsible for these wars of aggression, of global domination. And, you know, and the, the World Trade Organization and the IMF and the World Bank and transnational power. I mean, it's all tied together. And um, the two parties that we have, uh, unfortunately, in this country don't re- really represent what the real debate, you know, should be about. What, what do you think of um, Michael Hudson's it, analysis of the basically mm-hmm. rent seekers cre- being the U.S. and Western yeah. oligarchs and then yeah. uh, China and to a lesser extent Russia and maybe to a, fair, a somewhat less, lesser extent Iran have strong enough centralized states that they can rein in their oligarchs to greater and lesser extents and that that's a threat to gangster oligarch rule. And that's why we have this uh, crazed war on Russia, China and Iran. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about the American economy. And I mean, one of the arguments I make about understanding uh, propaganda in the United States, I mean, when I look at it institutionally, of why, you know, why there seems to be such a overwhelming preponderance of propaganda at a level we've never seen before, I think at least in part, this has to do with the transformation of the American economy into a so-called information you know, digital information economy. You know, what we did, you know, starting in the late 70s and 80s, we started just like Britain. We started moving all our manufacturing overseas. And, you know, we kind of destroyed the Midwest, the whole industrial 
heartland of America. And we shifted to these these kinds of um, a kind of economy that focused more more on selling things rather than making things. And selling things is really part of what propaganda is. I mean, propaganda is you can think of it as the kind of propaganda that the news media does. But propaganda is also about advertising. It's about marketing. It's about sales, public relations. And that's what is so prevailing in the American economy. And I think this is why we have such a proliferation of propaganda now. Why we talk about it is because the whole economy is rooted on selling things, selling yourself, selling your identity, selling your information. And together with the technological change of surveillance technology that's capable of really um, capturing all this identity information and processing it and then selling it again, this is like what you described, the, the rentier economy, where everything is just for rent because we don't, we don't really, not really rooted in a, a making society. Um, it's made on a, it's based on a selling society. What do you think and of so, Pepe Escobar's um, argument that, and others who say that the U.S. economic advantage over China and even Russia is not nearly as big as they tell us with their GDP numbers because the Russians actually you know, dig stuff out of the ground and produce things, and the Chinese really produce things, and we don't produce much. And if there's ever a real war, we're going to find out, like we did in World War II, that war production is everything. Well, and not only do we not produce things, but we depend on third world countries for producing things for us. I mean, this is this is like our economy is falsely constructed as an American economy, when in fact the American economy is a global economy. So all the things that we're selling, uh, especially the commodities that we're selling, are things, as you know, that are made elsewhere. They're made in China, they're made in Vietnam, they're made in Bangladesh. And so th- that's we don't recognize, I mean, in general, we don't recognize that the American working class are not just people are not just people who are doing labor in the United States, but it also includes the workers who are producing things for the American market in China and Bangladesh and, and all these other countries who are working under supremely exploitative conditions. Um, and they're subsidized. They're basically subsidizing what degree of of democracy we have in this country. It's a huge subsidy that that's paid. And if that subsidy is removed, I mean, the chickens would come home to roost. And um, this is how our system continues to operate as very complacently because it's rooted in an imperial system of domination and exploitation of people and of resources that are extracted from other places. I mean, even this phone that I'm talking to you on, I mean, all the components of this phone were largely derived from minerals that were extracted in, in the Congo and other parts of Africa and you know, to some extent in Asia. And it's all under, under brutal working conditions that this is made possible. So this, this sort of comfort level and complacency that, you know, Americans feel and who, you know, are standing up and, you know, criticizing Putin and all this. They don't really understand, I mean, how this how this economy that they're living under is constituted. And you think, how you think there's a real challenge to it now? Is there is there a significant challenge to this global domination system coming from Russia and China? Coming from Russia and China? I don't see so much analysis really coming out of Russia and China, you know, um, because I think that the, the, you know, critical, the critical elements in Russia and China are pretty somewhat suppressed. I think well, I'm talking about a geopolitical challenge. Oh, the geopolitical challenge. Well, that, that that's really crucial because it's 
it flies in the face of of American unipolarism. You know that uh, you know the during the uh, George, especially during the George Bush administration, and uh, you know the the team of people that were put together uh, under his government and subsequent governments to to use the opportunity of the breakup of the Soviet Union to call for a um, unilateralism and unipolarism. And, you know, China and Russia just standing up to that. They say, no, you know, we want to live in, you know, peaceful competition with you, but not based on American uh, hegemony and America calling all the shots for everybody in the world. They just won't accept that. And they have the basis now. China, Russia, I would say India uh, really have the basis for arguing that there has to be a multipolar system. And I'll tell you, a multipolar system would be much healthier. Than, the, than a unipolar system because you know it would be there would be competition of of ideas and um, and uh, and also there would be opportunities once that's recognized there would be opportunities for cooperation instead of, of instead of domination and the U.S. operates under a system that we have to dominate we have to get our way you know in the case of uh, going back to you know the uh, situation in Ukraine I mean this is what they're doing in Ukraine. I mean, any rational person, you know, it's not, you know, Trump came up with some fresh ideas, as I said before, because he, he came from the outside. I think any rational person who could become president, who's not part of, who's not an insider, would recognize that diplomacy is the way to go. You know, the way that we're going to get out of these crises we're living under, you know, the, the threat of nuclear war and the threat of global warming and uh, the, the threat of, of world hunger. The only way we're going to get out of this is really a, on a very high level of cooperation. And that's just the opposite of what the United States is doing. The United States operates under the principle that we're number one and uh, everybody has to listen to us. And they have you know, these compliant governments in Europe that are going along with this. And it's, um, it's a very dangerous scenario that, that we're living under. And uh, most people who are, you know, you know, calling for no fly zones or, you know, supporting more weapons to Ukraine. They don't understand that they're, they're really laying the, the foundations for World War III. They really are. I mean, it's just, I can see, you know, if we ever survive in the next, you know, 30 years or so, the future historians will lay this out exactly how World War III came about. And it'll, it'll include, if it's a rational analysis, it will include all this, you know, complacency and uh, compliance with the... Um, with the U.S. Uh, global state power. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the deep history of the Ukraine conflict in general and how the current situation evolved out of the Cold War. Because it, it feels like we've kind of been here before, that you know, the U.S. has been nuclear saber rattling against Russia for a long time, um, trying to bust up uh, countries that Russia had influence in in order to bust up Russia and so on and so forth. The article got into that. I thought it did a pretty good job of uh, saying some things that are totally taboo in the mainstream. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to do was to, uh, you know, I started out with the expression of uh, uh, you can't have text without context. In other words, you can't just have a narrative, just talking about a narrative of evil Putin and aggressive uh, Russia without without a context. And so I, what I wanted to do was explore a bit the context. And part of the context that I started with was uh, the Cold War, you know, what happened in Europe, uh, in Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War. And what happened was the Soviet Union, which had really won the war, I mean, the very 
not many Americans seem to acknowledge that, what, that they've laid out 27 million people to save Europe, including Britain, that, you know, Britain and, and the rest of Europe never would have survived had, you know, Soviet Union uh, been defeated by the Nazis. They wanted rescuing, uh, rescuing all of Europe. And, but nonetheless, you know, the uh, fanatical uh, American intelligence system uh, decided that uh, they were going to turn enemies into friends. You know, Germany, Japan would become friends and our allies into enemies, namely the Soviet Union. Yeah, and, and, and let, me, let me stop you there for a second, Jerry, because yeah. I've had a couple of guests who have talked about the uh, Lend-Lease program and the way that during World War II, the U.S. under Roosevelt was, uh, let's, some would argue, almost excessively generous to the Russians. Uh, and, then, and there were, of course, the Russian spies uh, in you know, high levels of U.S. power, Harry Dexter White and all those people. And so suddenly, all at once, we went from you know, a, a leadership that one might argue might even be a little too close to the USSR and infested with its agents to suddenly overnight – the USSR was just utterly and completely demonized, and this became the yeah. basis for the next several decades of post. How did they turn on a dime like that? Harry Truman. Okay. <laughs> Harry Truman. That's the explanation. Harry Truman, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure you know most of the audience uh, is listening uh, is aware of this, but I'll, I'll mention it anyway, that he, he really had no experience. He was put on the ticket you know, by the right wing of the Democratic Party in a 1944 election. And uh, he never consulted with Roosevelt about foreign policy when he came when he came to office when Roosevelt died in April of 45. And, um, you know, it was the right wing elements um, uh, in, in Roosevelt's cabinet who really dominated and the left wing elements were purged and people in the State Department were purged who had well, I'm saying left wing very, very loosely. They were actually more liberal than left wing, but they had a more nuanced understanding of what was going on in the world. And they were anybody with a nuanced understanding who didn't join, you know, joined the Cold War mentality was out. They were purged. Uh, this was the beginning of the McCarthy period. And this began this kind of fanatical aspect. So what happened in Ukraine was the CIA took it upon itself to uh, when it was created in 1947. And even before the CIA uh, actually came into into existence, the U.S. was bent on uh, overthrowing uh, overthrowing the Soviet Union uh, immediately after the war. And the uh, Ukraine was a, a target, particularly a target country for that purpose. That the CIA had a project a project of you know flying people, flying Ukrainians in. Uh, from outside, people who had been, you know, forced to leave because they were on the neo-Nazi side of, U of the Ukraine political um, system, they were flown back in, and uh, they they were intended to create sabotage and and to destabilize the Soviet Union. Ukraine, of course, was part of the Soviet Union at the time, and uh, this project uh, utterly, you know, utterly failed after several years attempting it. But nonetheless, it indicated that. That Ukraine was just, and you know, one thing that I found in the CIA documents is how they were originally top secret documents, so they were not intended to be seen by by people. But uh, one of the things they revealed was how open they were about the way in which they were exploiting these Ukrainians 
for the purpose, just for their own purpose of destabilizing Russia. And they said so. They used words like we're exploiting them. And they knew that they were working with Nazis. This also comes out in the um, in the in these documents from the CIA. They knew they were working with these Nazis. And yet they um, they felt like, ah, well, look, we can compromise on that because the greater danger is the Soviet Union, you know, not not the Nazis, the Nazis who had, you know, who had started this World War Two and uh, represented really the most ruthless and vicious and uh, brutal system of power that ever existed, probably. And some people say, um, plus ça change. the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've, they're still supporting Nazis in Ukraine. But I mean, it's so it's it was so cynical. It was so cynical that they they were willing to collaborate openly collaborate with known Nazis, even people there was you know even people who were involved in you know the, what was called the final solution, you know the the death camps, uh, even people like that who were known to be part of that were included in people that they worked with. In yeah, you wrote you wrote in your article that some of these Ukrainian Nazis actually were kind of worse than the German Nazis. They uh, did the dirty work of the German Nazis. Yeah, that's uh, right, yeah. and. Um, so this is it. So they, um, these are the kind of people, and um, and then they, uh, they, uh, the ones who, uh, who were who were endangered, you know, uh, because they were feared of the, you know, Soviets would take revenge, and uh, because the United States refused to turn these Nazis over to uh, to the Soviet Union, they were war criminals, and they refused to. Instead, they, what they did is first they initially set them up in Germany, and they contributed to um, the founding of Radio Free Europe which was a CIA secretly was a, a CIA operation. They set them up as, uh, as uh, commentators and uh, into working for Radio Free Europe. And then when things got a little bit hot in, uh, in Munich, uh, they shipped them off. They shipped them off to the United States where they gave them new names and, and positions um, to work for the um, intelligence apparatus in the United States. It was just so, just so utterly cynical. Um, but I mean, but this is not, I mean, Ukraine has been, you know, one of the things I try to understand, you know, I've never lived in Russia, but one of the things I try to understand is how ordinary Russian people, you know, view their world geopolitical situation. And you know, just, you know, a casual look at history. And you see that in the 19th century, they were overrun by Napoleon, but they overcame the Napoleonic invasions, which made them extremely proud of themselves that, you know, they did something that, you know, Europeans couldn't withstand the power of, of Napoleon. And then they were overrun in World War, in World War One with another another invasion. And then and then the expedition uh, in 1918 to try to overthrow the Bolsheviks and then again in World War II. And in each of these occasions, Ukraine was the corridor through which the Western invasions, the German invasions, Napoleonic invasions took place. It went through. So, I mean, so they have to regard Ukraine, which has historically been really part of Russia. Uh, they have to regard Ukraine as some place that they have to maintain some level of control. I mean, it's, it's part of their history. This is something that Americans cannot understand. And I think it's partly because we've never been occupied by a foreign power. Um, at least, you know, maybe in 1812, there was a brief, you know, British occupation. In Washington. Yeah, that's, the la that's the last defensive war that we fought, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we've never been as a country. We've never been occupied by a foreign power as a country. And... It's very difficult for Americans to understand, you know, what that means to be occupied the way 
the way uh, Russian citizens understand, especially older ones who remember, who can still remember, who are still around, uh, remember World War II and what it meant to uh, to be under the siege, the siege of um, of the Nazis in you know Leningrad and Stalingrad and so on, and the hunger and starvation and the loss of everybody lost somebody in that war. And Americans just cannot are not capable of empathizing with. And they just think all they can come up with is, oh, you know, Putin is like, he wants to restore the Soviet Union. He wants to take control of Ukraine. I mean, you know, they're just not willing to understand anything other than this kind of uh, uh, propaganda uh, trope about Putin as this evil character. I'm not saying that, you know, I wouldn't say that Russia is the most ideal, you know, uh, democracy in the world. No, of course not. But if you look, really, if you look at uh, Russian history and you realize that what Russia was under the czars, what Russia was under the Soviet Union, what Russia was under Yeltsin, that that Putin, by comparison, comes across as the most liberal leader, you know, uh, most liberal progressive leader that Russia has ever had. In its and and competent, too. And, and he's competent. Oh, God, that's the problem is that he's competent, you know. Exactly. It's too bad he's not more like Yeltsin, you know, just this alcoholic uh, who's just staggering across the stage of history, you know. But he's under, you know, you know, it's like what uh, Franklin Roosevelt once said about Trujillo, you know. Um, he may be an SOB, but he's our SOB, you know, that kind of thinking. And I think it's pretty much how Clinton looked at, at Yeltsin, you know. Uh, yeah, he absolutely. might be a drunken bum, but he's our drunken bum, you know, and um, and he was a complete disaster. And uh, and a lot of that was directly caused by the United States, because the United States, uh, you know, uh, R- Russia was so uh, prostate under um, under in, in the 1990s that they allowed these American advisors to come in and introduce shock therapy, they called it, which is kind of radical transformation to a corporate capitalism, which destroyed really destroyed Russia, put him into a deep depression, alcoholism, massive unemployment, declining wages and, and, and psychological depression. And then, and then Putin comes in in 2000 and he turns the economy around, you know, six to 8% growth rates, you know, consistently. And it explains why his popularity has really not waned very much, you know, ranging on, on the whole between 70 and, and up to 80%. And there's actually a parallel there with what I was talking about in the first hour with Zafar Bangaj about Imran Khan in Pakistan. Imran Khan, uh, like Putin, in a sense, is competent, uh, trying to do the best thing for his country and his people, um, helping preside over uh, shockingly good you know, economic growth compared to the predecessors and alternatives. And yeah. all of that is that's his crime is, is the competent leadership of a nation like Pakistan or Russia is apparently a crime in the eyes of these IMF looters and gangsters. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, where do we go from here? Well, I don't know. You know, Chomsky has been saying this, um, that really the way out of this is uh, certainly not uh, providing Ukraine with more sophisticated weapons and thinking that there's a military solution to this, but rather, you know, to um, somehow, you know, move toward an understanding that diplomacy is the only way out of this. I mean, you know, the Ukrainians have some issues, the, the, the Russians have issues, but, but um, 
But I think the one reason why uh, Zelensky is not cooperating uh, and going back to the Minsk agreements um, is that, you know, the United States keeps pushing him. I mean, his American military advisors are saying, we can win this war. You know, we'll give you more sophisticated weapons. You'll never have to. We're going to beggar, you know, uh, Russia. We're going to destroy their economy. You'll never have to worry about them again. And then you'll become part of you'll become part of NATO. And if they ever threaten you again, you'll have NATO troops, you know, and, you know, Zelensky is going along with this. Um, And um, even though even though he ran as a kind of a peace president when he came to power, um, he's been convinced by his American mentors to uh, to keep fighting. And uh, there are no winners. They're not going to be the only winners are going to is going to be the. You know the military-industrial complex who who doesn't who's never seen a bad war. You know every war is uh, a boost in their you know quarterly earnings and uh, opportunities for retired generals to become lobbyists and appear on MSNBC and CNN and Fox to as analysts and at the same time that they have uh, um, paid paid uh, lobbying positions in the defense industries. You know, this is another issue that I mentioned was that the Americans are not told that these people appearing as analysts, these generals and intelligence people are actually working for the defense industries while they're serving as analysts. An utter conflict of interest, which is not even exposed. But the only thing that's exposed is really the corruption of the American media system. Right. So so how do you get an anti-war movement going in that situation? Back in in the Vietnam era, we had a very strong anti-war movement after the invasion of Iraq and even before it, a lot of people in the streets. And we did have a lot of people going, getting shipped over to Vietnam and realizing suddenly that we were the bad guys. And to a certain extent, the same thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Dylan Avery, Corey Rowe came back from uh, Iraq and uh, made loose change about the 9-11 false flag that launched the whole thing, and it suddenly soared to 100 million views. This was back when the Internet wasn't yet censored. So there have been cases where there's been a mass movement against uh, these insane wars, and yet today it seems like it's yeah. kind of crickets, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated answer, I think. it takes uh, There are many dimensions to it. But, you know, one thing that's different with Vietnam was that um, there was a draft system and, uh, you know, young, educated, you know, young men um, and women, um, you know, who came from middle class families and, uh, you know, created dissent. And who also had a very, very strong civil rights movement in the United States, which, you know, raised questions about, you know, why blacks uh, should be killing, you know, Asians to serve the interests of white, you know, you know, when they don't have any basic rights at home. I mean, all of these things, you know, came together, the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And, uh, you know, people were mobilized on the streets. And also, you know, it was a direct invasion by the United States. They learned their lesson. First of all, then they stopped the draft. And so they just really took advantage of, uh, of young people, mostly uh, working class and people of color who really needed an opportunity to get some training, to get a college education. They took advantage of that, and um, and they preferred to use um, you know you know puppets like uh, like Zelensky to to fight their wars. And that's why this is a proxy war. Is there? It's the U.S. has really instigated this war. As I said, going back to World War II, and uh, they've never they've been relentless. In um, but they've learned lessons on how to do this. You know, and one of the lessons they learned was. Uh, to get rid of the draft and um, 
and maybe an indirect way of, um, of fighting wars. You're getting other people to fight wars, using drones, so you don't have to put boots on the ground so much. Um, but, um, but the real lessons are never learned. You know, Afghanistan, what are the lessons of Afghanistan? Not a word, <laughs> not a word in the media about what, you know, what was learned from Afghanistan. Um, so this yeah, is funny this that, yeah, Trump supporters uh, accuse Biden of being incompetent in the way he pulled out of Afghanistan. But actually, Trump had failed to pull out, even though he wanted to. He's tried to stand up to his generals yeah. and basically collapsed. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess maybe we should credit Biden there uh, with at least managing to, to get out. Well, yeah, I guess to some extent, and and, and in a way, uh, it was really kind of unfair the way he was uh, mangled, you know, um, for the, uh, you know, for the very awkward way that he did get out. Um, but there was no gentle way of getting out of Afghanistan after they'd been there for 20 years and created so much havoc in the country. Um, there was no gentle way of getting out, just like in Vietnam, there was no gentle way of getting out. You know, you had those those images of people, uh, scram- you know, Vietnamese people and scrambling over the walls of the U.S. embassy trained again. You know, there was no, and then kicking people, you know, off of helicopters. Yeah, you had the same images in Kabul. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, I mean, they uh, they focus more on the images of, uh, and completely lose sight of what this is really all about. You know, why the United States invaded uh, Afghanistan in the first place. You know, I mean, that the, the real issues are just not talked about. Rather, they focus on, on the image, the image issues. And that's what I mean, that there's no, you have text without context. Absolutely. You know, you well, you supplied some context in your article on the well, Russia-Ukraine conflict, the propaganda war. That's what we need to be doing, I think, is always going back and providing context for every claim that's made. Uh, by by um, by imperial power that uh, we know it's wrong, but we have to you know we have to critique it in a way that um, that it really finds the context for it and and explains it in a way that ordinary people um, who don't have PhDs can can readily understand it. You know, um, absolutely, have to make it clear to people. And yeah, I think I, I you're that's, what, that's what we're supposed to do yeah. in the academy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, I think your radio station is doing that. So I really applaud you for, you know, for um, I hope you have a lot of listeners because um, this is the way that we, we reach people. Uh, with the mainstream media, forget about it. You know, yeah. we have to. Uh, it's really the, the future is in the alternative media. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we have a a lot of quality here, the intermittent quantity. <laughs> Some stuff goes viral more than others. Uh, but I think the the people who are really trying to figure out what's going on and are paying attention are listening to shows like this. And I appreciate your being willing, being willing to come on and help uh, inform them. Uh, it was a terrific yeah, article and a great conversation. So thank, thank you, yeah, thank Gerald you. Sussman. Um, I think when we brought you on so abruptly, I may not have had time to properly introduce you. So you, you actually are teaching propaganda analysis and studies at uh, Portland State University uh, in the Urban Studies yeah. and International Global Studies program. Right. So keep, keep up the great work. God bless. Thank uh, you. I appreciate yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, Take good. care. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's uh, Gerald Sussman.
and uh, it's great to touch bases with somebody who can tell a little bit of taboo truth and keep an academic job at the same time. I'm Kevin Barrett. I can't. That's why I'm here at Truth Jihad Radio, truthjihad.com, broadcasting on revolution.radio, the greatest of listener-sponsored ultra-free speech networks. Come back next week, same time, same channel, God willing. So, hey, until then, have a great week. Thank you.